This is Scott Michaels, creator of the documentary The Six Degrees of Helter Skelter and provider of historic content for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You're listening to Rock is Lit. In a scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird religious rite, five persons, including actress Sharon Tate, were found dead at the home of Miss Tate and her husband, screen director Roman Polyansky. Miss Tate, who starred in Valley of the Dolls, was eight months pregnant and was found in a bikini-type nightgown with a rope around her neck attached to the body of a man. Two bodies inside, two bodies outside. Among the other victims were Hollywood hairstylist Jay Sebring and coffee heiress Abigail Folger. Authorities would allow no one in an unofficial capacity inside the posh $200,000 home in the hills overlooking Los Angeles. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines cut. The bodies had been dead about 12 hours. They were discovered this morning by a maid who ran screaming to neighbors. One officer summed up the murders when he said, In all my years, I have never seen anything like this before. While the police admitted they had no suspects in the Bel Air massacre, there were two more murders 15 miles away in the Silver Lake section of Los Angeles. Market owner Leo LaBianca and his wife Rosemary were found by their children stabbed and mutilated. The word war was carved into LaBianca's chest and death to pigs was smeared in the blood of one of the victims. The word pig had been scrawled in blood on the door of the Bel Air mansion where actress Sharon Tate and four others were slain. But police said, despite the similarities, they do not believe the crimes are linked. What do you think it is about this case that we're going on 54 years this August? Yeah. Why, what is it about it that captured the public's imagination that makes us still talk about it? I'm looking at your T-shirt, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You are on that movie set. Tarantino pulled me aside. He wanted to know the name of the book Abigail Folger was reading, as I mentioned to you before. I have this weird connection with this crime because my family was in L.A. in August 1969 when the murders happened, and my mother was six months pregnant with me. Hello, Lit listeners. Thanks for tuning in to this special episode of the show. As you know, Rock is Lit is a podcast about rock novels, the convergence of fiction and music. But in most episodes, I bring in music experts in the final segment to talk about whatever musician or musical period or music-related issue is presented in the novels to provide some real-world context. I love doing this because it adds a whole nother level from which you can appreciate the stories. Take Zachary Lazar's fascinating rock novel Sway, for example. That book brings together the early Rolling Stones, the films of avant-garde filmmaker and occultist Kenneth Anger, and members of the Manson family in a fictional setting. Zachary and his novel were featured in Season 1, Episode 6 of Rock is Lit. In the last two segments of that episode, I spoke first with music journalist Tony Sokol about the Stones and their interest in the occult in the late 60s, and then Zena Schreck, who was the goddaughter of the real Kenneth Anger, who just passed away on May 24. Zena shared her memories of Kenneth Anger and her insight into some of his iconic films, especially the 1969 film Invocation of My Demon Brother, a movie that plays a big role in Zachary Lazar's novel Sway. That episode is one of my favorites so far, but there's one thing I've always thought was missing, a Manson family expert. Well, I've got one now, so that original episode is finally complete. 
I'm thrilled to welcome Scott Michaels to Rock is Lit. Scott is Hollywood's original authority on celebrity deaths, including the Manson murders, and a former tour guide for LA's now defunct Dearly Departed Tours. As the LA Times said of him, quote, Scott Michaels knows where the bodies are buried, end quote. Quentin Tarantino even hired Scott to be a consultant on his film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which reimagines the murders of Sharon Tate, Wojtek Frykowski, Jay Sebring, and Abigail Folger at the hands of the Manson family in early August 1969. This past April, I traveled to L.A. to conduct research for a novel I'm working on, and Scott gave me a once-in-a-lifetime, one-on-one, all-day tour of major Manson family points of interest, which we'll talk about shortly. We'll also talk about common misconceptions about the murders, Scott's experience working with Quentin Tarantino on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Scott's favorite nonfiction books about the murders, people related to the case he's known, and little-known tidbits about the murders, like what book Abigail Folger was reading when she was killed. you have to tune in to find out the answer to that. Cue up the Beatles' White Album, slip into your fave retro threads, kick back, and join Scott Michaels and me as we time travel back to 1969 Southern California to revisit the true crime that brought an end to the free-love and groovy 60s. Afterward, I invite you to check out Season 1, Episode 6, to hear my conversation with Zachary Lazar about his novel Sway, and Tony Sokol's thoughts on the stones and the occult, and Zena Shrek's memories of her godfather Kenneth Anger. Without further ado, here's Scott Michaels. When I get to the bottom, I go back to the top of the slide. Do you remember the first time you heard about the Manson murders? I do, yes. It was in 76 when they broadcast the two-night special uh, Helter Skelter TV movie. And uh, and that was, yeah, that's how I, I got turned on to it. Now, in more recent years, I watched that film, and it's a bit thanky. You know what I mean? It's just a lot of courtroom <laughs> stuff in there. And I'm like, as a kid, all I remember is Manson turning around in Vincent Bugliosi's watch stopping and those crazy eyes. And uh, and that really made a an impression on me for sure. And then when they became eligible for parole, you know, I was growing up in Detroit and I thought I they made him into such a crazy boogeyman that I thought he was going to come slithering up the side of my house and crawl inside my window and, and kill me. So yeah, they, they, it was a convincing, you know, it was all so scary, and, and the prosecution succeeded in making him a really scary man. Yes, I remember seeing that movie, too. I don't think I, I must have seen it in reruns. I don't recall seeing it when it first came out. But I know what you're saying. That moment that Steve Railsback, who plays Manson, turns around, and well, the moment that the watch stops is one thing, but I think at the very end of the movie, he turns around and faces the camera with those eyes and it scared the shit out of me. I don't think I slept that night. It was, he was such an amazing Manson. Yeah. So what do you think it is about this case that we're going on 54 years this August? Yeah. Why, what is it about it that captured the public's imagination that makes us still talk about it? Well, I think I think there's a lot of a lot of similarities to people's lives. I mean, it was it was the late '60s. There were a lot of hippies. A lot of these girls came from homes that were not tragic homes, you know, and, and therefore it would have been really easy, I think, to get caught up in something like that. 
you know, there was the free love and it was a symbol of all that was good and loving and wonderful. And then it turned into something so absolutely sinister. So I, I do think that that has a lot to do with it. The fact that, you know, these are smiley kids, especially in the courtroom when they represented them in the courtroom, they're showing up in their cute little skirts and pigtails. And to know that they did something so, so very sinister. And also because the murders went unsolved for several months and literally there was no connection made and people, people were scared to death that somebody was going to crawl inside their window and kill them. I mean, it happened two nights in a row and nobody knew what it was back then. And it was, it put the fear of God into people quite literally. So it could, there was the, it could have been me. It could be me. Nobody knew where they were going to be. Nobody knew where they came from. So it was, it was just frightening because you know, America was saying, these are our daughters, and look what happened to them. And then America was scared to death. <laughs> you know? So because we yeah. didn't deal with anything like that yet. Yeah. And I, I think I told you on the tour that I have this weird connection with this crime because my family was in LA in August 1969 when the murders happened. And my mother was six months pregnant with me. And so there's all the news about what has happened. And you know, there, my father had a conference. It was a work-related trip. But, you you know, they're walking around going, what the hell is going on? And the other eerie thing is that my family's car was the same make, model, and color as Stephen Parent's car. And he was the first victim mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the night of August 8th slash 9th. In his car, yeah. Yes. Yeah. kitchen cooking breakfast for the queen the queen was in the parlor playing piano for the children of the king just in case there are people listening who maybe aren't that familiar with what happened let's kind of walk through what happened those two nights Okay, well, uh, it was the it was late in the night of August eighth and August ninth of nineteen sixty nine, and during those two evenings, seven murders occurred. The first night was at the Tate House on Cielo Drive, where Sharon Tate lived, and uh, and five people were either gunned down or knifed down that night by this quote band of hippies they they would call them. And of course, like I said, we didn't know that at the time, and who who had done it. And the next night, there was an older couple in their, in their late 30s and early 40s in a neighborhood about 15 miles away, uh, who were also butchered in the living room of their house, you know, as they sat watching or reading a newspaper. You know, these people were, you know, at the Tate house, a guy was sleeping in bed. Uh, Abigail Folger was reading a book in bed. And within a half an hour, all five of them were slaughtered. And the same with, with the LaBianca. So, and it went on unsolved for as long as it did. Then it turned out being this this group of young people. And up until that time, you know, hippies were, uh, you know, considered probably a nuisance at that point, you know, because it was the end of the 60s. It was a little bit like they were exhausting anymore. But uh, they were young, right. bright, dark, bright-eyed faces of these, you know, sweet kids and turned out to be doing something so very sinister. And the fact that Sharon Tate... Uh, was an actress that a lot of people recognized that was eight and a half months pregnant. And that, that really as terrifying and, and so very, very awful. And, and thinking of your mom at the time, how terrifying that must have been for her and the mm-hmm. similarities. And you, 
in in your mother's womb, you know, those those fears echoed on to you. I mean, you were born with it. It's that's it's really if you believe in that kind of stuff, which I do. I mean, we, it's been proven. That explains a lot with regard <laughs> it to does. me. I mean, you know, your mom had her hands on you all the time. And, you know, the thoughts that she had were, were going through you, too. So, yeah, is is it affected you? I know it did physically. It's fascinating. And it did almost everyone yeah. at some point. Yes. It really was. There, I think there really was that feeling of this is the end of the 60s. And, and we're talking about August 8 and 9. But there was a murder that happened before that, Gary Hinman, that kind of got all this started. And I don't remember the date for that. I don't remember how long before the Tate-LaBianca murders that was. But that plays a role in Zachary Lazar's novel Sway. So I want to talk about Gary Hinman. And everybody listening, as I said in the intro, Scott took me on this once-in-a-lifetime, one-on-one, all-day tour around L.A. We went to Spawn Ranch. I mean, we went all over the place. And it, I'll never forget it. It was the mo- one of the most amazing things I've ever done. And if you are... If you geek out over the Manson murders and you're going to be in L.A., give this man a call and just get him to take you around. It is so worth it. That's very flattering. Thank you very much. I'm glad. I'm glad. It's uh, I. Yes. Uh, Thank you. I'm glad that you I was able to facilitate that. Yeah, it was it was just one, you know, because I could feel this kindred spirit right from the start. It's like, oh, we're going to get along great today. And we did. Scott took me to Gary Hinman's house in Topanga Canyon. Or, or it's not, it, it was part of his house, right? They built onto it? Yes, yes. His original house is there. It's just, there's a lot of, you know, that, that he was a shack in the forest, basically. When he was, mm. And I found out recently, Linda Ronstadt claimed to be his next door neighbor. I mean, it's true. She was a neighbor what? of his. Yeah, yeah, it's wild. In fact, I found the quote. I thought you might want to hear it. But Linda Ronstadt said, and this has been verified by someone who I know who knew her. When the Manson family came through, they managed to murder my next door neighbor, Gary Hinman. I was lucky enough that I wasn't uh, home that night, or they may have come for me. Of course, there's a lot of that, too. Um, yeah. We knew these girls, Linda Kasabian and maybe Leslie Van Houten, too. I lived in Topanga Canyon at the time, and they would hitchhike, and they would talk about this guy, Charlie, at the Spawn Ranch. Uh, I didn't know him personally. We knew it was kind of a bad scene, but when we found out how bad a scene it was, we were horrified. So, I, you know, it touched on so many. And that's what's, I, when I made my documentary, when we made our documentary, uh, whatever it was, almost 15 years ago, we called it the Six Degrees of Helter Skelter because it, it reaches so many different places and people. But Gary Hinman, that was the 27th of August, uh, I'm sorry, 27th of July, about two okay. and a half weeks before the Tate-LaBianca murders. And Hinman was an associate of the family. Hinman was a music teacher. He was a bit of a hippie, too. There's two different theories about how Hinman got involved. Well, we know Bobby Beausoleil was living in his house, like in the basement or something like that. And that's how Bobby Beausoleil was an associate of the Manson family. He wasn't a member. He wasn't a disciple. I hate that word. He wasn't a follower of Manson's. He was just kind of along for the ride. You know, why not? Hey, there's all these chicks and let's, let's, you know, let's uh, party. And and he was a musician and Charlie, you know, liked his musician and uh, that they had that in common. And so Bobby was sort of a hanger on. And he was also the cute one. 
you know, he was, he was like bait for the girls, you know, he, you know, come on, man, you know, he convinced Bobby to get these girls to join the family. And then the girls were brought on as bait to get the bikers. So yeah, man, come on and hang out and, you know, you can have all the chicks you want. And that was his way of getting security. It's his paranoia was to get the bikers to hang around with Manson. Anyway, mm-hmm. through Bobby Bosley, Gary Hinman, the music teacher, the possible drug manufacturer sounds really sophisticated too, but uh, making mescaline. And uh, so there's okay. two possible theories as to why Hinman was chosen. One is that Manson heard he had some money that he inherited. The other one is that Gary Hinman made bad mescaline and gave, uh, sold it to Bobby and they in turn sold it to the bikers and the bikers came back and get their money. So either way, it was financially motivated to begin with the, the murder of Gary Hinman. It started financially. Okay, so that kind of gets into some of the misconceptions about this whole thing, the whole helter-skelter theory, because really what you're saying is that this was less to do with any kind of race war and more to do with with money, more to do with getting, because Bobby Beausoleil then got arrested for the murder of Gary Hinman. Right. Yes, it wasn't, I mean, yeah, it was about drugs and money. That's basically what mm-hmm. this whole thing was all about. And Mr. Bugliosi, the prosecutor, had, I, I always compare it to the musical Mamma Mia, because they basically, Mamma Mia, they took this song, this song, this song, and it wove a plot around it. Well, Mr. Bugliosi took this piece of evidence, this piece of evidence, this piece of evidence, and he wove it together into a plot. And the best one he could come up with was Helter Skelter, the war between the blacks and the whites. Charlie was racist, but I wouldn't call him a white supremacist, mm. you know? That was, that's, that's, he didn't organize like rallies or go to rallies or anything. He wasn't a Nazi. <laughs> it wasn't like that. I, the, the, the swastika on his head came later, and that was just for shock value. But yeah, so it, it, there was no real race war, but Manson was using his distaste or dislike of black people to manipulate the girls. The girls may have believed in all that nonsense, but Manson was smarter than that. And he was just winging it. There was no, there was no master plan. Okay. And you actually talked to Bugliosi. Yeah. You actually had, yeah. He was a nice was guy to me. Like? I, mean, I really liked him. We didn't, we didn't get into too much because he was always very uh, standoffish when it came to people that wanted to talk to him about this. However, no one would know who he was if, if we weren't talking about it. Mm-hmm. So there was that. But it was always in public forums. It was never like an intimate one-on-one. I tried to a couple of times, but you know, I got the polite, I'm way too busy kind of a thing. And he always was. He always was. Getting back to Gary Hammond, I was surprised when we went out to his house, how far away it is from Sharon Tate's former home. It's it's a drive. Mm. And then but it's not really that far from Spawn Ranch. Because Spawn Ranch is kind of out in that area, Topanga Canyon too, wouldn't you say? Yes. It's it's at the top of Topanga Canyon and and Gary Hammond's house is at the bottom, closer to the ocean. So so okay. there was there's about a I don't know, maybe 10 miles in between Spawn and Gary Hinman's house. I'm winging, I, you know, I might be wrong, it might be five, but I'm guessing yeah. about 10. And Spawn Ranch was closer to a uh, freeway. 
So it was a lot easier to okay. get around. Hinman, no, not at all. So yeah, it was, it was a, it's a significant distance to Beverly Hills where the Tate murders occurred, especially from Hinman's house. But either way, it's, 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 a, it's a trudge because back then the highway wasn't as sophisticated as it is now too. Right. But that was just amazing for me to go to all these locations and get oriented where everything was. And like you were just saying, Spawn Ranch is right off the road. Mm -hmm. And I had pictured it being, you know, way far back someplace where you can't access it. And of course, Spawn Ranch burned down in what, 1970, 71. So we didn't actually, we didn't see any buildings and we didn't trek down to where the buildings were because the grass was pretty high and I didn't, I was afraid of snakes, I admit it. But we did trek down to where the cave is. And that was incredible. It's a, a steep little, a steep incline. And then it's not very far away from there. And it's just th this amazing little piece of, of history that remains. It's an odd tourist attraction. It's become a I don't know, hallowed ground for some people. Yeah. Uh, they do. I know that, the, you know, there are people that bring groups out there and they, you know, they, they play music and there's the Manson crowd and there's the, there's the victims crowd. They rarely blend. So the Manson crowd, I like to go to that ranch, to that ranch and I like to see it because it's history and it's beautiful. Yeah. But there are others that would consider it more like a, a, a church or something like that for those who consider that hero worship of, of some degree. Right. And I just want to make it clear that that was not the tenor of the tour at all. I mean, you never, neither one of us had that attitude going to all of these places. It was, it was, this is history. This is this monumental case that happened. My dog is shaking <laughs> in the background. That's the noise. But it, it was just this really monumental case that I was always fascinated by. And it just meant so much to me to be able to go to these locations, but it wasn't in a reverential way. It's, and that, yeah. that is not how you handled it. They, they, it's, it's a funny thing because when you're talking about the people, there were famous people. And even, mm -hmm. you know, the LaBiancas are now famous because of what happened to them. But, but there's, there is the element of, wow, this is so cool to see it. And yet we're not going, yay, this happened, but oh my gosh, yeah. it's, it's like this, this amazing story. You can write something as, as, as fascinating as this case, I don't think. So it's like you're being in a set. And that makes it safer to look at it too, in a weird way, you know, because when you, when you deal with like victims' families, it's a whole different idea and you realize what happened to them. And it's like this whole amazing thing exploded around their poor, you know, their unfortunate loved ones. So. Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Take these broken wings and learn to fly. All your life You were only waiting For this moment to arise Blackbird singing in the dead of night Well, you just mentioned set, so I'm looking at your t-shirt. Once upon a time in Hollywood, you were on that movie set. Tell me a little bit about how that came to be. That was such a wonderful experience. 
Tarantino, Quentin Tarantino saw my documentary and contacted me through my office. And when I had the tour company in Hollywood, it wasn't like I <laughs> worked in a high rise. And we were <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah. So they said that I got the call that Quentin Tarantino wants to meet with me. So I went to the office and I figured I'd be in a boardroom of people, but it ended up being just he and I talking for quite a long time. He loved the documentary because it was, it's kind of, I don't know, gonzo we, you know, we just kind of messed around and we we're shooting stuff because I, I had the obvious enthusiasm and interest for it, as does he. So we ended yeah. up being able to talk for quite a while about uh, different facets of the case that were, you know, nerdy to be, you know, more, more from a, cop, a pop culture perspective, definitely. Not so much yeah. the victims as much as the details of, of their lives, you know, because that was what was re represented in the film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It was their lives. So we got along really, really well. And so I, I took him and his, and his crew around for a day. And we, we, you know, it was just really a lot of fun to be involved in that process. And I was on the set a few times during some of the historic, uh, I, you know, to me, like the locations. They, my friends mm -hmm. in real life, own the house that Jay Sebring lived in when he was murdered. And it was also the same house that Paul Byrne of Gene Harlow's husband was murdered or killed himself, depending on who you talk to. So I knew those people and Quentin wanted to meet them. So I introduced them and they ended up shooting up at that house for about a week. That didn't end wow. up in the final cut of the release version. It will be in some sort of director's cut at some point in time. But, um, oh, so, but it was neat because it was history. It was unfolding in front of me. It was, it was the most amazing time travel moment for me because the case is so important in my life and to be able to walk and talk and see these people moving and driving the cars that i know because everything was identical to what they wore and you know I, as i mentioned to you they you know at the el coyote restaurant where sharon tate supposedly they had their last supper that night you know he put it back all the billboards all the streets all the parking meters every car in the parking lot everyone walking by it was all 1969 it was like it was the most amazing summer. So it was a Gosh. wonderful bookend to my time in Los Angeles, but it was just professionally the most valuable, you know, the most important thing that's ever happened to me. And one of the most important personal events too. Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Was there anything during shooting where you took him aside and said, that's not accurate, that it wouldn't have happened this way, or there's some detail that you need to change? Hmm. He was good. I mean, he knew stuff that I didn't know. And, mm. and uh, you know, he was questioning bits about, well, he pulled me aside. He wanted to know the name of the book Abigail Folger was reading, as I mentioned to you before. I do too. Wait, you I think you said it in the documentary. See, before I met you, I had seen parts of the documentary, but not all of it. And when I came back, I saw the whole thing and it's damn good. I mean, you go everywhere, including Barker Ranch, and we couldn't do that on our tour because it was just way too far away. But yeah, that is it's a great documentary. What was the name of the Madame book? Bovary. Wow. So he was see, he was guess what when I was at Jay Solani, you know, I was leaving and he called me over and asked me. That was crazy that this he Here's this legendary, I'm not a huge Quentin Tarantino fan, and it's not to say I'm not. I've seen his movies, I like his yeah. movies, but I'm not. he's not like a god to me like he is to so many people. But to me, it was just a lot of fun. And he was, you know, when we were at the uh, El Coyote, he owns a movie theater a couple of blocks away. And he pulled me aside. He goes, hey, you know, guess what's happening over there or something? And he pointed out his theater. I said, well, that's your theater. He goes, yeah, but what was happening that night? <laughs> you know, And he tells me that night there was a premiere for a porn movie at his theater because it was an old 60s porn theater. Said, yeah, I didn't know that. And one thing I was able to tell him about, I talked to Mark Lindsay from Paul Revere and the Raiders. And Mark wow. Lindsay, I knew he lived on Cielo Drive in that house. He was roommates with Terry Melcher, who was Doris Day's son. He was uh, a music producer, and he and Mark Lindsay were living in this house. And Mark Lindsay and I were talking, and I, he says, yeah, Terry and I wrote two songs on that piano in the room, in the house. And Tarantino didn't know that, so he, he like latched onto that. That's right. You told me about that. I think you said they wrote the song Him or Me and the song Good Thing, and Good Thing ended up being in the movie? I think. I remember the piano. It was, uh, was um, The Mamas and the Papas, Straight Shooter. That was sheet music that was on the piano of the house that I knew. So I told Tarantino, oh, wow. and he used it in the movie. So I, I'll take credit for those things. I will, because they 100% came from me. <laughs> That house was was rented. The owner of the house, his name was Rudolph Altabelli. Altabelli lived in the guest house. Altabelli rented out the main house. So Sharon DeRoma didn't own that house. Terry Melcher yeah. and Mark Lindsay rented it. Then, uh, then, then they moved out and Sharon and Roma moved in. But the house was rented, furnished. 
So that piano that they composed that music on was in the room when the murders occurred. So you think that instrument that, that, that they used was just feet away from where those people were murdered. And that adds a whole different uh, spin to, to those songs to me. And that was, I think that's, right. that's the kind of stuff that clicked with Tarantino. You know, it was like, who knew that book was going to be go down in history as the last thing Abigail Folger did before she was murdered. That's fascinating. <sighs> So corrections, not so much, but certainly an exchange of information that ended up being, you know, used, which was really thrilling. Well, I just want to talk about my experience walking up Cielo Drive. I mean, to, to begin with, you took me on the exact route that the housekeeper would have taken and where she would have gotten off at the bus stop and then turned to go up the road. And, and you said, um, a friend of hers picked her up and carried her on, drove her on to the house. And I mean, we took that whole route and I had chills. It was, it's the same route for the most part as the killers, right? They had, they had to drive that same route. Yeah. And then we parked the car exactly where they parked their car, which was at the the foot of Cielo at the bottom of, of Cielo. And it's longer than I thought Cielo Mm -hmm. drive. It's longer. And we walked up and it was, I remember it was really quiet and kind of still. And then we got to your friend David Oman's house and and took a little kind of excursion there. And then we walked on up to the gate and it's not the original gate. It's, it's pushed forward quite a bit from where it was originally. Isn't that right? It's actually back. uh, Oh, it's back. Yeah. 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 A couple, about 10 yards or so. Okay. And and I couldn't see in, but I know what the mansion that's there now looks mm-hmm. like. But it was just an incredible experience and I, you know, I wonder what those actors in the movie were feeling as they were playing those roles. And and by the way, I mean, there is no house next to Sharon Tate's like in the movie with um Rick Dalton's house is next door, doors to her in the movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't know where that would, where they shot that, but that, that was interesting to see, okay, that there is no house next door, but it, I don't know. I mean, just the whole experience of getting oriented and actually being in that spot was incredible. It was just incredible. Yeah. Those, those were the moments that I tried to capture on my tour and not, not necessarily, I mean, of course with you, because I know, it's nice to see those places again through the eyes of someone who hasn't seen them before, because I've walked up and down that street a million times and I'm not saying it's not, yeah. I, I haven't, uh, there's always been a, an element of reverence, but, but to be up there with somebody's experience for the first time makes, makes a lot of difference. And yes, to be, to, to walk in those footsteps as they did. And it's funny. I don't know if you remember David Oman, uh, who owns the house. It's about four doors down from where the gates are. He, at which the house was not there in the 60s. It, it's been built since. But, you know, David was saying when Tarantino was scouting, because I walked, I walked Cielo with Tarantino to begin with alone, uh, back, back when he was doing the research, the location wow. shooting. And then David was saying the night they were filming, or no, he brought the actors, Tarantino brought the actors to walk up the street. And David was saying, oh, I'll show you where everything is. I'll show you where everything is. And Tarantino screamed at him because, no, I don't want you to. I want them to experience this the way it was in the dark that night alone, you know. And he was he was upset with David for that. 
but that that was how important it was to to Tarantino get to get the experience right, and I thought that was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember David telling us about that when we went inside his house, and we should say I know I'm deviating a little bit, but that was an interesting experience going in his house. I'm not somebody who believes in ghosts per se, but I was down in. I don't know if you call it the basement. It was it was downstairs with him, and I was recording. He was talking. I was recording uh, him talking. All of a sudden, the lights flickered, and then my phone stopped working, and I couldn't I couldn't record anything else until we got away from Cielo. Then my phone started working again. That was a strange moment. Yes, uh, Benedict Canyon. We've we we talked about this. I know we have because I can't stop talking about it but i think benedict canyon is definitely a hub of some sort of activity um and now it's native american uh i live on tribal land so they call themselves indians i'm going to say indians okay the indians who you know traveled from los angeles which wasn't called los angeles back then would travel over the mountains to the to the san fernando valley or what it's called down there were only three or four paths that they could have taken Benedict is a little bit off the beaten path. There's talk that it is cursed by people, by the Indians. I would believe that. You know, I'm not I'm not hmm. desperate to believe every supernatural story, but there's too much evidence to me of negative, horrible things that happen to people in that canyon. I mean, not just the tape murders, but either people that, that died on the canyon, were murdered on the canyon, died mysteriously, or died in other places, but they lived in the canyon. So there's just you know, dozens that I know of. Yeah. So I, I do think that that area has a lot of activity and, you know, the, the, the electronic stuff, that's, that's textbook, you know, when electronics go dead, that happened to me only one other t- No. Oh, I didn't, I may, I might've told you this. The night of the day of the anniversary, the 50th anniversary of 2019, I was in a little bit of a hub of, of, stress because I had an event planned that weekend. We were doing a, a lovely 60s. We we're trying to counteract the, the negativity of that night. And we were doing a 60s party, you know, at a movie studio. You know, it was just <laughs> sort of we're going to talk about it. We're going to say, God bless these people. And we're going to have, you know, celebrate the 60s night instead of a let's talk about the murders night. So I was getting a lot of flack from that. The movie was coming out. I was getting a, a, just, I was involved with a lot of that. There were people that I know there were psychic medium people that were saying, don't go up to that house. Do not go up to Cielo Drive on that day. David Omen, please come up to my house that day. It was, there was a lot of stress that was heading my way. That day, I did take a busload of people up to Cielo Drive and my bus caught on fire. No. I, I, you know, those buses are looked at every day. I go through every single thing I check, you know, because I legally have to. I have a checklist that I have to show and everything's fine. They're maintained like, like every, you know, by mechanics all the time, every 30 days, you know, and my bus got on fire that day. So you tell me. <laughs> wow. I don't think you told me that. That's interesting. <laughs> it, was it was really, really crazy because Deborah Tate, Sharon's sister was on me. She thought I was doing something awful. Um, you know, it was, it was just a lot. I was the focal point of a lot of stress and uh, it was, it was oh a weird, gosh. weird, weird day. And then that happened. So, yeah. Outside my window was a steeple With a clock that always said twelve
of rocks from Cielo Drive. And then one, I think that big one that we got was from Spawn. And I, I have to tell you, because I rented a car and went to Joshua Tree, because I was also doing some Graham Parsons stuff. And I got to thinking, and like I said, I'm, I'm, I don't think of myself as a superstitious person, but I'm, I'm driving around with these three rocks going... I'm getting just these weird vibes, and I don't know if I want to put this on the plane with me to go back to North Carolina. So I did wind up leaving them at Joshua Tree. I went to a place in Joshua Tree and said a few words and and left them there. And I just thought, I don't know that I want to bring that energy with me on the plane or bring it home. Yeah. So they are there. Yeah, people. I feel figured different. Joshua yeah. Tree National Forest that that's strong enough. That natural force is strong enough to handle whatever weird shit would be coming. It reminds me of a time I have, I was doing a presentation in uh, Galveston on you know the collection because I collect all kinds of all kinds of artifacts having to do with awful things really, uh, yeah. but we you know we treat everything with respect and we bless things and we do sage and holy water I mean the whole thing we I believe totally in all that stuff, but I was on the airplane with with a piece of John Denver's airplane a piece of the Hindenburg. And a piece of Carol Lombard. Scott, <laughs> are you out of your mind? <laughs> I mean, in retrospect, I am. But it was, it was three plane crashes, and you you carried that with Patsy you Klein, on the plane. Patsy Klein. Oh my yeah, god! Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm glad you survived. <laughs> but it has a lot to do with your attitude and how you feel about these things. I think you know we're not handling things disrespectfully. And I was literally there to teach people about these things. So I, you know, my, I guess my feelings are a little bit different, but certainly, certainly the, these things, if, uh, you know, if they weren't handled respectfully, I think would, would come along with a lot of baggage. There've been so many nonfiction books and, and films made documentaries made about this case. Yeah. Is there anything that jumps out at you that you think they keep getting this wrong? Well, by calling these things, by calling Charles Manson a mass murderer, for one, you know, it's never been proven that Charles Manson's ever killed anyone. Uh, that's, that's just a fact. Um, I also, you know, he, he, we know he tried to for a fact, so it's not unlikely he didn't kill anyone, but it's never, ever been proven. The race war thing is another thing that I would take issue with. A lot of it has to do with Manson himself, you know, the the white supremacy business and and devil worshiping, and yeah, you know, people tell me they eat babies and and junk like that. So there's, it's been a common story that Sharon Tate's baby was removed from her, you know, and that we know for a fact that didn't happen. So there's lots of horror elements to this, as if, as if it isn't horrible enough to, to make it more mysterious. You know, that Charlie was a satanic, you know, priest or something like that. You know, Charlie spouted Bible verses, but he was a Christian growing up. You know, he went to a, a Bible bashing church, you know, so he knew all that mm. stuff. He knew how to talk. He knew how to, to manipulate people. He did. I mean, that's, that's, that's how he got people to do the things he wanted him to do. The other thing is that Manson told him to kill anyone. I don't believe that that happened. I think Manson strongly insinuated that that's what he wanted to do. But these girls were saying, Charlie told us to do this and do this. And I don't believe Manson ever did that. So a lot of the misconceptions revolve around Manson himself. 
And there's also the element of you know, Hollywood wanting to be associated with it and, and you know, in, interjecting themselves into the story because it makes them so, you know, feel important. Um, that, yeah. uh, that's also kind of interesting. So your feeling is that Tex Watson is really the one who instigated, not instigated, but went there maybe with orders from Charlie to do one thing and it escalated and he got pissed off at Wojtek Frykowski because Frykowski was kind of shitty to him. And then it went from there. Yeah, I, I think that it was supposed to be a robbery. I think that they were expecting there to be a lot of money. And I think I'm confident that Wojciech Frykowski, who was one of the victims, who was a friend of Romans from Poland, who was was really a pretty scuzzy individual. He was a shady character, that very, guy. Very, very. And, and a lot of people think that these people were strangers. The Tex Watson and, and Charlie and all those guys were strangers. These people hung out. You know, the, the Tate house was, was an open door. Sharon and Roman were gone for several months during that summer. And that house was a party house. And Abigail and Wojciech were, you know, yeah, come on in. They all hung out at Mama Cass's house, you know. And, and so they all, it wasn't random. I mean, these people knew each other. So that that is, that's important. And Wojciech, yeah, I think Wojciech and Tex had some history. Now, be it, uh, you know, a drug deal gone bad or Tex, somehow Wojciech ripped him off. I, that's what I believe was the deal. And when Tex kicked him and told him, you know, told Wojciech, Tex has always said, I'm the devil. He said, I, I'm the devil and I'm here to do the devil's business. It just went wrong. Oh, uh, but, oh, I know you. I know all three of you. Yeah, Spawn Ranch. Spawn Ranch, yeah. Woo! I don't know your name, but I remember that hair. And you, I remember your white little face. And you were on a horsey. Yeah. Uh, you are... I'm the devil. And I'm here to do the devil's business. No, I was dumber than that. Something like Rex. Shoot him, Tex! Tex! But not that this, it was ever going to go right, but I think Wojciech started the fight and that became the whole thing. Uh, Tex killed four of those five victims that night. So I think it was, he just turned into a, he was ferocious. I yes. think it's down to, to Tex more so than it is down to Manson. But you see, Manson wasn't stupid, but also Manson wasn't, you know, he didn't, he never, what's the word? He never flipped and blamed anyone. Because he, he knew the prison code of ethics. So when, when somebody mm. brought up something, he would say, you got to talk to Tex about that. You know, I believe it was down to Tex and Tex has never really taken responsibility for it. And you know, he's always going to yeah. blame Manson, always, always, always going to blame Manson because it's easy. Uh, and Manson mm -hmm. stepped up to it because Manson knew the way he was he was looked at in prison. Manson was five foot two or five foot four. You know, he was a, he was a little, you know, a little guy and Manson had to live in prison. He, out of his 80 plus years, he'd only been on the outside for 15 years. So he knew, he knew the system and he knew that in order to survive this five foot two or five foot four guy has got to act crazy. And that's what he did. And he made people afraid of him. So he was, he was using that.
Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Going back to that night, it's interesting, after the murders were committed, everybody in Hollywood's like, yeah, I was supposed to be at that house that night, supposed to be at that party. So what Steve McQueen actually was supposed to have dinner with Jay Sebring, I think, and that didn't work out. But everybody else, it's no, like that's not true yeah. either. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. okay. No, and, and there's just about about a month ago, Valerie Prine came out and said she was supposed to be there. Patty Duke, I spoke to Patty Duke, and she said I was supposed to be there, but I had strep throat. Lou Gossett Jr. took a shower and decided not to go. Quincy Jones decided not to go. Uh, Rex, I heard yeah, that Rex one. Reed and Jacqueline Suzanne were supposed, supposed to be there, quote unquote. Rick James, who was a good friend of, uh, of J.C. Springs, said he was supposed to be there. And the best one, I had to write this one down because it was good. Oh, Jimmy Webb, the songwriter who wrote Up, Up and Away and Galveston and MacArthur Park. He's talking about Mama Cass. This is good. He said, Cass confessed to him in a whisper that unknown to Vincent Bugliosi, the prosecutor, or anyone else for that matter, she had been the first witness to arrive in the early hours of Sunday morning. A party, first of all, it would have been Saturday morning, but anyway, it got the day wrong. A party in the offing and looking forward to seeing her friends, she had walked like an automaton past the slain pizza boy in his car up to the desecrated body of Abigail Folger and stopped, knowing she did not want to see what lay in the house beyond. She retreated to her bedroom and stayed for a few days. You know, it's, it's the most outrageous what? stories. Denny Doherty, who was of the Mamas and the Papas, said that a lot of people claim they were supposed to be there, but John Phillips and I really were. So it, it's, it's, I mean, I have a list of about 50 names of people that claim they should have been there or could have been there. But Sharon was in a bra and panties. It was one of the hottest nights of the years. Wojciech Burkowski was passed out on the sofa. Abigail Folger was reading a book in bed. There was no party. Unbelievable. Okay, let's stay with that night, August 8. I love your video that goes into detail about whether or not Sharon, Wojciech, Abigail, and Jay actually had their last meal at El Coyote Mexican Restaurant. Bugliosi said that they, they had reservations and yet nobody who worked there could place them when asked about it later. So we really don't know no. if they went, do we? No. And I, I don't know if you saw the video I did with the L.A. County coroner. When yeah. Okay, so he went over the contents of their stomach, too. And pepperoni was in somebody's stomach. Pardon? Wasn't it pepperoni well, in somebody's stomach? That's what it looks stomach? like. Weirdly enough, Sharon Tate's autopsy, the part where it comes to contents, uh, stomach contents, it was, it's difficult to read. I read olives. And I see the word pepperoni. Now, that doesn't mean she didn't have pizza earlier in the night. But if they did go to the El Coyote, both Jay Sebring and Wojciech Bukowski had very fast digestive systems because there was nothing in their system. <laughs> Abigail Folger did have Mexican food. So that, that element checks out. But nobody saw him there. 
uh, apparently the name Sebring was on a reservation list. Nobody's ever seen that reservation list. So I don't even know where it came from. Deborah Tate's hmm. sister, uh, Deborah Tate, who was Sharon Tate's sister, said, no, that never happened. But who knows? I wasn't there. The people that were, you know, are no longer. So it's it's fascinating. Yeah. But lore, it's lore. You know, I think the El Coyote yeah. has become that place because of that. I really do. I, there's not... I. I would guess that probably 75% of the people that are in there every night say something about Sharon Tate. You took me to the El Coyote on the tour, but they were closed because it was a Monday. But I went back on my last day, and I, I planned it this way. thought, if they had their last meal there, I'll have my last meal in L.A. there. And I went, and it's so interesting because I had already watched your video and I knew, and we talked about it too, the possibility that it, it never even happened. But man, you asked the hostess, where did Sharon Tate sit? Is it true that, that they were here on that last night? Oh, absolutely. Here's the booth. So they are, they are claiming it. Yeah, sure. there, was a, there was a waitress that used to uh, work there that used to do interviews. But the one, the one that supposedly waited on them, the one that's mentioned in the book, her name was Kathy Palmer. Yeah, and she didn't remember seeing him there either. I don't know how they found out she waited on them, but it's in it's in Helter Skelter that uh, you know she did that. She was shown photographs of the victims and could not recognize them, so could not identify them. But I'll always go there, and I always in my mind go, oh, "I got to go there on the night of the anniversary." Most everyone yeah. there that night is for that reason. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad I went, just in case. I'm glad I went. And the food was actually pretty good. I love good. the El Coyote. It is, it's, got, it's just a vibe. It really is. It's a, yeah. it's a charming place. And it's been there for over 80 years now. So I love it. For people who are not that familiar with the case, are there some books besides Helter Skelter that you would recommend? I know that you would, you would say start with Helter Skelter, right? Yes. And, and because, I mean, Vincent Bugliosi does go into the race war thing. However, that book is a textbook of what actually did happen. It's documentation of the trial. No matter what the prosecution is, you know, uh, accused them of, it doesn't matter. It's the definitive book about the case. It tells you the evidence, where the evidence was found, the date, the chronological order, the people who were involved. So I would go with Helter Skelter first and foremost. It's it's very thinky. It's a very thinky book, but it was good. Now to add the emotion to it. Ed Sanders wrote a book called The Family, and that was sort of the storybook version of Helter Skelter, the book. You know, it was sort of what put faces and names and emotions and, and life at the at the ranch together. And Ed Sanders did, you know, hang out at the ranch after after the murder. So he did know the feel of the place. It was after, after, but, uh, you know, he knew what life was around there. So I liked that book a lot. And that was the second book I read. It's it's got several incarnations since then. I forget what it's called, Charles Manson and the Manson Murder. I don't know. It could be anything anymore. But is this by Ed Sanders? That's that's the book. And then you know I've done a lot of reading about this a lot. And uh, the one book that that clicked for me and, and Susan Atkins wrote a book called The Myth of Helter Skelter. And when I read her book, it was like an audible click in my head that that now I understand what really happened back then. But it's it, Susan Atkins was bananas. And, and But the way she explained the situation, she wasn't so much concentrating on it or trying to prove a point, but I was reading it and I go, now I get it. It had okay. to do with, there was an attempted murder of a man named Bernard Crow. Charles Manson you know, tried to kill him, shot him, left him for dead, but he wasn't dead. 
But Manson didn't know that. And then Manson became convinced there was a Black Panther, one of the, you know, the, the militant, you know, group, the Black Panthers, who, you know, yeah. they were uniformed, armed Black people that America had never seen before. And they scared the hell out of people. And I'm not saying they were bad people. They were militant. That's all. And, and white America couldn't cope. So Manson was scared to death that the Black Panthers were going to get involved. And that's what started the whole paranoia race war business and having people patrolling the ranch and dune buggies 24 hours and, you know, watch out for the black guy, watch out for the black guy because they're coming. So it was about revenge and drugs and, and money. <laughs> yeah, so. I have this book by Greg King. What's it called? Sharon Tate and yes, the Manson yeah. Brothers. Yeah. yeah. That, that was yeah, pretty good. It was a really good book. I like Greg. Greg is a good guy. And I was really enamored with that book because it was, it was again, mm-hmm. it was these, the, the story of the people and, and what happened right. to them. Yeah. You know, another, I, I watched, there was a documentary. I was kind of involved in it too. I think it was called Helter Skelter, the American Myth. And it was about, it was like a six night or five night documentary that was on maybe about three years ago. And that was when they went into everything in depth, Laurel Canyon and, and the whole bit. And it was really, really good. And I, I, I would recommend if anyone wants to do a deep dive you know, visually, uh, the Helter Skelter of the American Myth was a very, very good documentary. And you got to put yours up there, too. That was amazing. Thank you. I'm, I'm very proud of it. It was all done so rogue, you know. It was like, oh, let's do that. Let's do that. Let's do that. And the trip to Barker Ranch was was the crazy thing because that was, I that was know. five hours, only less than 200 miles. We took five hours, and 20 miles of that was, like, off-road. And then we get yep. in the middle of this desert and there are like bullet holes and everything from you know people that are just doing target practice out there or whatever and uh into this empty house and anyone could have been in there and you know that was that was disconcerting to say the least because uh that was way out in the desert but mm-hmm. glad we did it because it was documented that, now it was at barker ranch where there was that cabinet that Charlie yeah. was in, that he was hiding in. Yeah. Okay. I couldn't remember if it was Barker or Spawn, but I remember that scene in the documentary, your documentary, where you're looking at the spot where it had been and you, you realize he was a really little guy to get in there yeah. like that. Yeah. That was a tiny little cabinet. So yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, he had long hair and it stuck out of the door. Sticking out the uh, door. And that's yeah. how he got busted. But um, that was real history. That was, yeah. It was. I have had the opportunity to know a few people that were involved in the case, and uh, one of them she became a really good friend of mine. Her name was Virginia Graham, and Virginia Graham was in was in Civil Brand female prison uh, with Susan Atkins. And when Susan Atkins wasn't in there for murder yet, she wasn't in there for the Tate murders or the LaBianca murders. Although she was anyway, she wasn't there for the Tate murders yet, and she was bragging to Virginia Graham that she was the one that did it. And Virginia just couldn't, she's like, who's this little girl? She's doing somersaults in, in the middle of the prison. And how could this cute little girl have done that? And Virginia thought she was was full of it. And she wouldn't stop talking about it. And Virginia says, girl, you better 
watch your mouth because people are going to take you seriously and you don't want that. And Virginia, unbeknownst to Susan Atkins, knew Jay Sebring. Virginia had looked into the Tate house and renting it. She knew the layout of the house. So finally, Virginia just had enough and said, okay, tell me about it. Tell me about the house. And Susan Atkins said, when I walked in the door, there were those beams on the ceiling. And Virginia said, as soon as she said beams, I knew she was telling the truth. But I'm not going to be the one to tell her because snitches get stitches. And Virginia had been around. And so she palled up to another girl and said, you want to you want to check out this girl? Maybe you get that reward money. There was a $25,000 reward. Her name was Ronnie Howard. It's distracting because mm-hmm. it's not the director. But Ronnie Howard was yeah. in prison. She was a friend of Virginia Graham. So Ronnie Howard, you know, was the one who palled up to Susan Atkins. Now, at that point, Susan Atkins had a, a death list, was telling everyone who they're going to kill, who they're going to kill next. And it was going to be fascinating stories. She was going to have sex with Tom Jones. And just as the moment he was going to climax, she'd shoot him in the head. She was going to, they were going to find Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. They were going to cut out her eyes and chop off his penis and send them all to Eddie Fisher. Uh, but the one that they said they were going to, they were going to kill Frank Sinatra and, and string him up and, and strip his skin and make purses out of it. And at that point, they're as crazy as they sound now. Back then, nobody knew what was going to happen, and they were scary yeah. people. And Virginia happened to be very good friends with Sinatra. And Sinatra, she goes, "Now I got to say something." So Virginia stepped forward at the same time Ronnie Howard did, and they broke the case. Uh, and Virginia was a, was a great friend. Um, I did interview Rudolph Altabelli for a while, but that that was he was the guy that owned the house and. A little information about it, except that I found out the house was furnished and I got the phone numbers because that was always a, a like a nerdy thing for me. Um, yeah. And then Officer Wills, who was the man who gave Manson a moving violation the night before the murders and it blew Manson's alibi. Manson said, oh, I was in Northern California. Right. And Officer Wills, I got that's on tape that you could you could watch if you wanted to on my YouTube channel. He said, no. I was there and, uh, and I gave him the ticket and that blew his alibi. So I got, and Stephen Weiss, who was the little boy who found the gun. Uh, I got to interview him too. So I've met some fascinating people that had direct associations with this case and, and, and their stories are now memorialized. So I'm, I'm really happy about that. Yeah. I mean, well, you've been, you've been such a jewel in, in terms of, of doing that very thing. And, you know, backtracking, since you mentioned Stephen Wise, we took the route that the killers took after the murders. And we first of all went to that little little enclave where they hosed off Mm -hmm. and then they continued on the path. And then we saw where they threw the gun. Then we went down to where Stephen Wise's house was. And because they threw it in his in his backyard, unbeknownst to them, and he's the one who found the gun. And I I love that you said that you talked to him, and he had no idea where they where they got for the book Helter Skelter, where they got the whole bit about he knew how to handle the gun because he was watching a TV show. Mm-hmm. So that was all just some something that they yeah. Made up. And Stephen Weiss was like, I don't yeah, I don't know Dragnet. I never watched Dragnet. I hated yeah. that show. <laughs> but the fact that yeah, he found the gun. But he knew how to handle a gun because he was taught how to handle a gun. So he knew how to pick it up and not be dangerous. And he gave it to his father. And the father called the police and said, this might be that gun everyone's looking for. And they hung up on him. They, the father hung up on the, the police said no. And they hung up. I think it was a prank call.
was arrested. Remember, I told you the whole thing with Virginia Graham and Virginia is the one who turned, you know, who turned her, turned her in basically. Susan Atkins was going to be the star witness for the prosecution, the idiot who kept going Charlie's Jesus or whatever. Uh, we love Charlie. We love Charlie. She thought she was bragging about it. In truth, she was confessing. Mm-hmm. So she was going to be the star witness like an idiot for the prosecution. Okay. Man- Manson somehow got to her and told her to shut up. And she said, okay, I made it all up. So everything that she said was nonsense. And then that's when they went after Lindy Kasabian and gave her immunity in exchange for her testimony. In the meantime, Susan Atkins' testimony or was, was sold to the newspaper. And it was, it was published on a Sunday in December, three months after the murders, two nights of murder by, told by one of the killers. And she spelled out exactly what happened. She said, after the murders, after I tasted Sharon Tate's blood, we drove for a while, we stopped in a driveway, and we hosed off in the driveway. And this old man came out and yelled at us, telling us to get out. Well, Rudolph Weber is that old man, and he was reading the newspaper. He's like, hang on a second, that's me. And he contacted oh my God. and they interviewed him. And they had, and, and the thing is, when, it, when he had an altercation, verbal altercation with Tex Watson, he wrote down the license plate number of the car when they left. So that put an eyewitness in the canyon. Then she says, Susan Atkins, we drove for a while and we got to a place and Linda threw the clothes off the cliff. Well, the next day, just for giggles, the, this news crew went out and retraced their steps and they went and found the detectives had this information for months and they never looked for it. And this newspaper crew, just for the hell of it, goes out and finds this these bloody clothes. Taking into account the published report in the Los Angeles Times, the story that Susan Atkins told about what allegedly happened that night after the murder at the Tate House, we drove from Cielo Drive at the base of Benedict Canyon up here across from 2901 Benedict Canyon. Leaving from Cielo Drive, driving up Benedict Canyon, we timed ourselves and tried to place ourselves in the same position that the people would have been in that night after they left the Tate House. Six minutes and 20 seconds of moderate driving up Benedict Canyon led us to this spot. And looking over the edge of this hill, we found several pairs of blue jeans and what appeared to be some very dark sweatshirts. These shirts and the blue jeans appear to have stains on them. So without hesitation, I went directly across the street to 2901 Benedict Canyon, used the telephone, called Lieutenant Robert Helder, LAPD homicide, and told him that I think we have found the clothes they're looking for. Then she says we had this funny-looking gun and threw it out the window of the car. Well, Stephen Weiss found that gun, and they described it in the newspaper in December. And that's when his father called the police, and they hung up on him, saying, you know, I think this is the gun. There's, they published a picture of the kind of gun they're looking for, and he says, that's the gun Stephen found. And then they called again, He said, and the police says, no, we don't keep weapons that long. It's been destroyed. We threw it in the ocean. So they said, what? Are you nuts? This is a murder weapon. So he contacted a friend of his in the media, and the media told the police, and the police had it in custody for three months. They had this thing. So if it wasn't for Susan Atkins' idiocy and her big mouth, this whole thing exploded with her words. So that mm-hmm. is the most mishandled, most ridiculous investigation. And, uh, and that's part of the other thing that makes this almost like a fairy tale, because it's like buffoonery. Uh, the detectives and how they handled things back then. But 
But see, since the murders happened in two different areas, the LaBiancas were in a place called Los Feliz. The Tate murders were technically like Bel Air. It was Los Angeles. It was close to Beverly Hills. It was still 90210, but it was not actually Beverly Hills. But two different direct, two different districts, two different police departments uh, that were yeah. handling the investigation, and neither of them wanted to work together. Because of the shady hippies up on Cielo Drive, you know, the, those those guys are looking at, no, we're looking at drugs for this one. No, we don't want to talk to you. And the others, you know, the mid-Labiancas were just a, an older business couple. So they didn't look like there was any kind of similarity. So there, it, just, it was just, oh, my God. It's almost, if it wasn't so sad, it was comical. Let's talk about where the major players are now. We know Susan Atkins died. Charlie's dead. So we've got... Did Linda Kasabian die yeah. not too long ago? Okay, yeah. And Tex Watson, of course, is still in jail. Patricia Quinwickle, still in jail. And Leslie Van Houten, still in jail. Is Squeaky From still in jail? No, no she's been. Okay. She signs books and, of course and she, stuff now. She's a real, you know, cult hero. And Bobby Beausoleil, okay. of course. Bobby Beausoleil, who was arrested for the murder of Gary Hinman. Uh, and another right. man by the name of Paul Watkins, who was with Bobby Beausoleil when Gary Hinman was murdered. So, and Leslie Van Houten, who raised a knife and, and, and stabbed a dead woman 16 times, did not cause her death. So you can't really get her for murder, although there's no possible way she could have known that. Yeah. But that's, that's Leslie. So they're all, they're all still incarcerated. The only one I think, I think Leslie and I think Pat are, would be considered rehabilitated. They don't deserve out, but I think that they would be rehabilitated. Tex, the monster, nah. No, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't like saying, you know, I, I detest when people say somebody, somebody's evil, but he's close. He's close. Scott, I feel so lucky to have met you. It was, it was a wonderful day that you gave me, and I feel like I've got a new pal. As I was saying, I'm just so glad I had that opportunity to make the rounds with you, to go that route and to look at it from a close perspective. Because it changes your perspective when you when you are in proximity to where things happened and go into the LaBianca's house and, and on and on. It was amazing. And I'm very grateful to you for giving me that opportunity. One, yeah. And one thing I would say that I'm really grateful to for is, is Tarantino, because I thought for the longest time that these victims would be forgotten. Once the you know their immediate family members are, are gone, and nobody goes to the parole hearings to object to the killers being you know released, and he made them into human beings, and they'll be studied forever now. So maybe not the way you want them to, because it, it's he made it into the storybook ending once upon a time. But they have names, they have faces, and people can relate to them on a different level now than a black and white photograph in a book, which is all they were for fifty years. I love that movie. I know a lot of people take issue with the ending, but you just said it. He gave them the storybook ending that they didn't get in real life. And I, I think it's a terrific movie. It's such a love letter to Hollywood, too, from that it's period. Perfect. It's a perfect movie, yeah. And how wonderful for you that you were involved in it. Yeah, it was a great <laughs> I still, I <laughs> still can't smile. stop smiling. <laughs> Oh, well, what have you got going on now you want to tell folks about? Uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm trudging away at my at my videos, making my videos. I write the ends of people's biographies, my little vignettes, about eight or nine minutes long. And I'm about to head on a trek of Route 66. We're doing a whole thing from start to finish. 
couple nice. of weeks. So I'm, I'm excited to do that. So yeah, it's just, it's just life goes on and, and it's, it's weird not to have my tour company anymore, not to have that day to day existence. However, you know, I don't really, I live in the desert now. I don't really miss the stress of living in Los Angeles and, uh, and people are nice and I, I like, I like nice people. <laughs> and nice is good. Well, keep on keeping on. And I hope our paths cross again very soon. It has been a pleasure to talk with you. Yet Thanks, again. Christy. Thanks for having me on. It's been a real pleasure getting to know you and I look forward to seeing you yeah. again. Check out Scott Michael's YouTube channel at Dearly Departed Tours and his documentary on the Manson murders, The Six Degrees of Helter Skelter. You can find him on Facebook at Scott Michaels, Instagram at I am Scott Michaels, and Twitter at I'm Scott Michaels. Pick up a copy of Zachary Lazar's novel Sway, the novel that inspired this bonus episode with Scott Michaels. And don't forget to listen to Season 1, Episode 6 of Rock is Lit, featuring Zachary Lazar with Tony Sokol and Zena Shrek. Stay tuned to Rocky's Lit News because I'll be posting the extended video version of this bonus episode with Scott Michaels on YouTube in the next week or two. You don't want to miss this. I'll be adding video I shot on my tour with Scott of major Manson murder sites, photos of Scott on the set of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and other goodies. Subscribe to Rocky's Lit so you won't miss it. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is lit. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.